Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hi, it's Amy. Just a quick warning that this episode deals with some difficult issues, including sexual assault. So if you're not up for that right now, or if you're listening with kids, you may want to skip this one. I almost feel like I was I was almost born with this urge to just eat so much food so fast. And it's not funny, but it's just like, what a weird problem. Jill Sutherland has had her weird problem since she was a child. And since she was a kid, she's been sneaky about the way she eats. And I would just take a look at, like, the marks in the ice cream and just kind of try to follow the marks from the person before to make sure that I didn't look like any food had been taken. So I was always trying to just shave off a little bit of food off of just everything I could. In sixth grade, she was supposed to sell candy bars to raise money for a school trip. Instead, she holed up in her room and ate the whole box, 50 candy bars in less than a week. I just want to eat all the food, and I want to eat it fast, and I want it to affect me on, like, a cellular level. As Jill tells it, life was chaotic in her house. There was a lot of fighting and a lot of drinking and drugs, pot smoking at the dinner table, meth... Her parents got divorced. The family moved from Oakland to Modesto, a working-class town in the Central Valley in California. And Jill says she was an especially anxious child. She was more sensitive to everything going on in the house than her sister was. Food was something she could use to calm her mind. She has one memory of being at her grandfather's house when she was really young. My grandfather was a Hell's Angel, an Oakland Hell's Angel. And I remember just like being so uncomfortable about being there, there's something intuitively that I felt was just like dysfunctional and scary and just kind of weird. And I remember just kind of zoning out and watching this movie and I had a bag of pretzels. They had let me have like a full bag of pretzels and I ate the whole thing. I remember my mouth just being like so salty and dry, just eating fistfuls of these pretzels and it having this calming effect of like, it's gonna be okay, like it's okay that I'm here. This is The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. When Jill was young, eating helped her tune out the general chaos around her. Soon, she'd feel she needed food even more. When I was 12 years old, I was sexually assaulted on a camping trip with my grandparents, and that's, that's actually how I lost my virginity. It happened when her grandmother asked an older boy to walk her to a payphone. 
Afterwards, she was scared and ashamed, and she didn't tell anyone what happened. Instead, she threw herself into food, and she gained a lot of weight quickly. She also wrote in her journal all the time, trying to make sense of what had happened. And then one day, her parents found the journal and read it. And their reaction? That the rape really wasn't that big of a deal. That was a huge betrayal. That's when food became less of, of a... It took a backseat to drugs and alcohol. That's when, you know, my whole world is like, this is no holds barred, you know? Anything can happen. And all sorts of things did happen. She started drinking a lot, using drugs, having sex. When she was 13, police picked her up in the middle of the day, blacked out drunk in a park, while two brothers, 17 and 15 years old, were having sex with her. She said her parents blamed her. I felt really lonely. Um, and I felt like, yeah, it was just like my parents, they're in their own world. They don't understand who I am. They don't, I mean, want to understand. So that just, that really set me off into a world of just like, I don't care about myself. I don't care about you. I don't care about anything. She remembers so much shame in that time, feeling so wrong. But you wouldn't have known it if you met her. By the time she was in high school, she had developed a persona. My mom always says that she she always likes to say that she didn't raise any doormats. My sister and myself are very assertive, very outspoken. By that time, she weighed 280 pounds. And I used my weight in high school to... I was just on the, on the, you know, like the offense almost, you know, I did everything I could to, to make sure that people understood that I was to be respected. Like no one was cool enough to hang with me. I was a character of my own making in high school. And that really helped though. It really helped. It helped me get through. I did not get picked on, you know, people were afraid of me. Um, I was intimidating and I feel like I actually really enjoyed high school. I, I didn't have a bad time. I was in a band with some of my like favorite lady friends, you know, me and my little girlfriends were in a punk band. My best friend Robbie and I started a gay straight alliance. We were like in this people magazine about it. Like, so I was kind of, you know, like a celebrity in my own mind. I, it's something really amazing happened for me in high school in that regard that it was actually a really positive place for me. Jill's always had a ton of friends. She has charisma. She's attractive, confident, strong, funny, cool. Her internal struggle, her shame, it just doesn't really show through. But she says it was always there. Super sad <laughs> and on the inside. So outwardly, very powerful, very strong, very outspoken. But in the inside, very sad. It felt very, very alone. Before long, things started to fall apart. She graduated with honors and went to college, only to drop out after she spent all her financial aid money on crystal meth. She moved to Oakland and found a decent job as a financial officer for her college. She was using coke at work, drinking a ton every day, spending all her money on drugs and booze. There was an insatiability to her, a ravenousness. She couldn't get enough. I have, you know, a host of friends, and we all party, and it's good times, but I just felt so emotionally, just, like, emotionally bankrupt, you know? I just didn't know what it was that was so wrong. Um, you know, and, and I, I had a sneaking suspicion it might be drugs and alcohol. Uh, I had a suspicion it could be the weight. I had been going to therapy at that point for two years, and it just seemed like I had so much, like, like inside was just like this big tangled ball of yarn, you know, and I could just keep kind of picking away at it, picking away at it, but I could never solve anything. 
And then, when she was 26, a moment. An epiphany when drunk in a bar. I came to in a bar in Oakland, which has now been shut down, but it's like notorious, like the, it was at the time like a notorious kind of clubhouse hangout for alcoholics. It was called the Silver Lion. It was Sunday. I'd been there for hours, and it was probably like noon. Uh, I'd been there for a long time drinking. I started off with mimosas and Bloody Marys, and then it's just regular drinking in the afternoon. And I, I just kind of had what I would call a moment of clarity at that point where I just kind of, I looked around and saw what I was doing in that moment and, and what I was choosing to do with my life and who I was surrounding myself with. And something, just a thought came over me of like, these people are all dying in here. I'm dying in here, you know, I'm just slowly dying. This is the kind of epiphany you hear about a lot. The realization that sets someone straight changes their life. It sent Jill to rehab. She got sober. I thought that getting sober would give me the life that I wanted. You know, I thought that once I got sober, I could have an amazing career. I would, you know, go back to college. Uh, I would get a boyfriend. We'd move in together. Uh, I would do something creatively, you know. None of those things happened. You know, none of those things happen. It is so deflating to feel like you found an answer and then to find maybe it's not the answer. So again, she turned to food. At the time, it seemed like a good alternative. I had a friend in um, recovery who's still a very close friend of mine. She told me, uh, you know, when I just had maybe 30 days, she says, you know, my first month. I slept with whoever I wanted to sleep with. I ate whatever I wanted to eat. I did anything I wanted to do as long as I didn't drink or use. And that's kind of the accepted, the accepted norm that, you know, you can compensate with other behaviors that it's like a, a harm reduction in a way, you know, cause I'm not gonna get in the car and kill anybody after eating too many cupcakes, you know, like I'll be okay. But as time went on, an unhealthy routine set in. My typical day would be I'd get to work, um, I would have a coffee, I wouldn't eat anything until way late in the afternoon. Um, then I would have some like huge lunch, I would have a dinner on my way home, I'd have dinner when I got home, and then I'd go to an AA meeting and I'd eat dinner after the AA meeting. So I'm having like these like five huge, highly caloric meals a day all within a time frame of, of a few hours. So that's what my life was, day to day. Jill got up to 380 pounds, and she increasingly had the feeling that the weight was the real problem. It was keeping her from happiness. And she was having some health problems. She discovered she was pre-diabetic. So she decided to do something about it. When she was around 30 years old, she was approved for gastric bypass surgery. That's when the stomach is sewn shut, making it impossible to overeat. She scheduled a date for it, but there was a catch. She needed to lose some weight for the surgery to work. So she went on a crash diet, mostly living off diet rock star energy drinks and cliff bars. But there were still 20 pounds she couldn't lose. So she looked for a program to help. Knowing that there was a 12-step for alcohol, drugs and alcohol, I knew there had to be a 12-step for food. And I figured it had worked with for me previously, so let's, let's go for it. She found a group called F.A. It's Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. 
It's like all these extra words in there. People think it's like food anonymous or fat anonymous. It's food addicts in recovery anonymous. The group started as a more radical, strict offshoot of Overeaters Anonymous, based on the premise that some people are addicted to food. It's a controversial idea that's gaining more acceptance lately, but it's a tricky problem. Unlike drugs, alcohol, even gambling, you can't just give up food. We all need to eat. FA's plan calls for total abstinence from sugar, flour, and alcohol. Everything else is strictly controlled. A typical day is essentially you wake up, usually around anywhere from 5 to 6 a.m. You call your sponsor on the dot. You're not to be one minute late. Um, it's con considered like insubordination. Uh, you talk for 15 minutes. You do 15 minutes of quiet, called quiet time. You pray and you read the daily reflection. Then, throughout the day, you are to make three program outreach calls, and you eat your three weight and measured meals. Those calls she mentioned, those are to other members of FA as support, so people know they're not alone. If they're struggling, there's someone to talk to. Between the calls you get and the calls you make, there is a lot of time spent on the phone. The program runs on sponsors, who are other FA participants. The sponsor makes a meal plan. For Jill, it was for breakfast. Eat four ounces of protein, six ounces of vegetables, one ounce of grain. Now, one ounce of grain is <laughs> a very, very small amount. Imagine preparing a shot glass worth of oatmeal. When Jill went to the meetings, the people were really intense, and it all seemed a little wacky to Jill, but also welcoming and promising. In FA, if you are a new person, 10, 15 people will come talk to you, they'll give you your number, they'll tell you they've lost, I've lost 50, 80, 100 pounds. How can you ignore that? We're gonna take a quick break now. Hold on, we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to The Leap. When Jill joined FA, she went all in. I started losing weight rapidly. I was losing 20 pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds a month. Um, I started counting the calories. I was eating about... 700 calories a day, uh, which is like not enough for a child to eat, really. So I'm a 380-pound th woman eating 700 calories a day. I plugged Jill's particulars into a calorie counter, her age, weight, 
height. According to that, she'd lose about a pound a week if she ate just under 3,000 calories a day. And under the plan her sponsor gave her, she was eating about a quarter of that. By the way, I talked to other people in the program who were allowed to eat more than Jill was. But Jill was having such success losing weight with the program, she decided she didn't need to do the gastric bypass. She was shedding pounds, and it became her whole world. She describes an obsession. You're 100% focused on food all the time. You're hungry, and so you're thinking about food. You're making food. You're preparing food. You're chopping food. You're talking about food. It, it, it makes your whole world food. And sometimes that felt powerful. I felt like I had the answer to obesity. Uh, I had the answer uh, to my lifelong problem of food. Um, and that my dreams were coming true in a way. But the thought of living like this forever made her miserable. My whole life I have to wake up at 5 a.m. and call a woman and tell her what I'm going to eat that day. My whole life I have to measure every single ounce of food that I'm ever going to put in my mouth. My whole life I can never eat flour and sugar again. Even if it is one day at a time, I can't have a slice of my own wedding cake. God forbid I ever get married. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I just, that that's a horrible life to live. Even so, she dived way in. That tendency toward extremes that showed up as drinking too much, abusing drugs, overeating, now looked a lot like an addiction to not eating. Something changed to where I was now getting off on not eating. Uh, something changed to where I was counting calories, so I was trying to eat less, less than what was but I was supposed to be. So instead of that four ounces of steak, I was trying to eat two. Um, and so I'm restricting on top of this restrictive program. So how many calories are you going I'd down to? Maybe 500. Maybe. This is not under the advice of her sponsor. She'd gone rogue. She started taking laxatives to purge the weight. Within two years, she had dropped 225 pounds. She was 155 pounds. And the world was so happy for her. People were shocked. People were absolutely shocked. People said I looked amazing. People said that they were so proud of me. Um, they couldn't believe what was what they were seeing. Uh, people were just, people didn't recognize me. Friends I'd known for years would walk right past me on the street. Um, I was spending all my money on clothes, going shopping places I could never shop before. But she felt terrible. Just so tired, so depressed, can't function. Uh, I started getting heart palpitations. Uh, and I started fainting a lot. And it was scary when I got down to my lowest weight. Because that 155 is not a regular 155. I mean, you have to think there's probably 20 to 30 pounds of loose skin on top of that, too. She felt more alienated than ever. How can you say when someone's like, I'm so proud of you. You're taking such good care of yourself. You look amazing. You look so beautiful. How can you turn around and say, you know what? I feel awful. I felt better when I was bigger. I, I feel so lost. I feel so afraid. I, how are you supposed to say that to someone? And a familiar feeling came back. All this effort, all this work to fix herself, like she did getting sober, that old thought was there, that this was not the answer. Losing that weight, I thought that, I had this expectation that if I lost the weight, 
that my, you know, my dreams would come true. I would be able to feel comfortable in any situation. I would be able to, you know, uh, have my choice of, of whatever guys I wanted to date, you know, guys that wouldn't date me in the past because of my weight now wanted to be with me or, you know, I just didn't have to feel ashamed of who I was. And I felt even more ashamed. I had to carry around my food in little plastic containers. I had to weigh my food. I had to make these weird phone calls all the time. You know, my body looked awful. I would, I would joke that like, I look great with my clothes on, but you know, I take, I couldn't be intimate. Um, cause I felt so ashamed. I think I, the whole time I was maybe intimate with one at my lowest weight. I think I was intimate with one person. And she didn't recognize herself. That feeling she mastered in high school, discovering her power, wielding her weight. And essentially, the size, I, smaller than what I was as a child, you know. I'm very small in the world when I'm used to being very large in the world. And then Jill's body began to revolt against her diet. I was at a doctor's office and um, I was getting an exam and I don't know why, because I was sitting up um, and they were doing an exam and they were squeezing my legs and just doing like some, ref it was like a regular medical exam. And I started feeling like a lot of anxiety and was like, oh God, I'm going to pass out. And I passed out and I fell. And I remember when I came to, they wanted me to drink a can of sugary soda and I said I couldn't because I, it would be a relapse. And, and the doctor looked at me like I was crazy. And he's like, well, whoever is telling you that, tell them your doctor said you had to. Finally, on medical advice, Jill went to a rehab center for people with eating disorders. Their immediate goal was to get her eating normally. They encourage you to eat three meals and two snacks. And I don't think for someone with, with my form of, of the way my disease shows up, is, is binging and and they kind of allow for that at the beginning because they say you know it's like you've been crawling through the desert looking for water and you happen upon a waterfall are you gonna sip from that waterfall or are you gonna dive in and gulp it um but the problem with that logic is is that i never stopped drinking that water and i didn't stop eating within a year and a half jill had gained back all the weight and more she was nearly 410 pounds so you just lose this incredible amount of weight so quickly in front of everyone. And everyone's so proud of you, only to turn your heel and to gain all that weight back just as fast. It's humiliating. It's humiliating. Uh, you know, when women tell me, you know, like, oh, I gained five pounds. I'm just like, are you crazy? <laughs> I've gained like 230 pounds in, in you know, two years. It was a very low time. Jill had been hounded by a deep sadness and emptiness since she was a child. And as long as that was there, she tried to treat it with food or drugs or alcohol. I felt like I had worked so hard. I had worked so hard in therapy. I had gone to so many doctors. I had done everything anybody had told me to do. And here I was in a total failure. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Um, and then I drank. I drank. I decided I'd made that decision. I said, if I, I can't do this, I can't do this anymore. 
Uh, and so I drank. It was a short relapse. Jill has so many good friends. Some found out about it and intervened immediately. She was in a meeting that night and back on the wagon. It's now been about two years since Jill first gained that weight back. She weighs about 415 pounds. I wish my story could be a story of like, hey, I was a, <laughs> I, <laughs> I wish my story was, I was a lifelong food addict. I can't have flour and sugar. I found FA. It's the answer. It works. It gives me freedom um, from food obsession. And look at me now. I'm on the right size. But that is not my story. But here is her story. I'm going to trap your neck. We're going to do like a little kind of little fade back here. Just a Jill is now a barber. She works at a place called Refinery Grooming Club in San Francisco. Hipster hair, ground zero. There is an antler light fixture, a taxidermied peacock. These are people who take a good men's haircut and straight razor shave seriously. <laughs> Jill is chatting away with a customer. She feels pretty great right now. I had never been in a profession before where you have to stand in front of mirrors all day. So there was getting used to that, you know, like looking at yourself working all day long. And you do, you get to, you get to kind of acclimate to that in a little bit and can appreciate that, like, this is me working. And this may have been just the thing she needed, one way to get at this eternal sadness and shame, more than food, booze, drugs, people's praise when she lost weight. It may be that she needed to get a better, more realistic look at herself, to really see herself. And staring in the mirror makes her do that. What she sees looks pretty good. She's curvy, sexy, lots of tattoos, big smile. And there's another thing about her body. It's doing its job. When she was in barber school last year, really wanting to get to this place, Jill was so worried that she couldn't do it, that her feet just couldn't handle 415 pounds pressing on them for 10 hours a day, standing, working. But she's been able to do it. I feel like my body's capable. And that's a new feeling for me. I didn't feel like my body was capable before I lost the weight, and I didn't feel like my body was capable at my lowest weight. And for the first time, this is my body feels strong, it feels capable. I am not worried so much about what my body looks like while I'm working, I'm just worried about my body working. Her body is not where she wants it to be. She feels like a good weight for her would be 220 pounds. She's a little scared to start dieting now because she knows where that can take her. But she knows she needs to lose some weight eventually. You know, I, I don't think I'm going to make it to like an 80-year-old, 400-pound person. Like, the, not a lot of those walking around. So it's definitely in my mind of a goal. Um, I just don't know when. Right now, she's trying her best to be normal with food. She still binges maybe once a week, but that's way less than ever before. And she's getting better at recognizing when things happen that cause her to binge. She's still in therapy, working to get a hold on her sadness. And she's trying to go easy on herself. My leap is a, is a leap of just, like, self-acceptance. <laughs> just loving myself for this through this situation it's like you're standing here and you can either go forward and say okay this is who I am it's okay and we're gonna get through this and I don't know what the future holds I don't have a lot of hope for solving this problem but I'm still worth like living and putting one foot in front of the other 
and everybody saw me stumble. Everybody saw me go through this transformation. But it's, I'm still worth it to be here. I feel like I accept myself more now than I ever have. And that I, I, I love myself more than I ever have. And um, I have compassion for myself more than I ever have. And it, it took all of this to happen for that to, to, for it to manifest this way. That's The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. And I'm Amy Standen. Nick Dupre composed the music for this piece with additional music from Seth Samuel. Nathan Campbell wrote and performed the song you're hearing now. Our audio engineers are Katie McMurrin and Seal Muller. We had production help from Andy Brown. Casey Miner edited this story. The executive producer is Joanne Wallace. And if you haven't already, subscribe. We have new episodes coming out every other week. And while you're at it, leave a comment in iTunes. That helps us, and it helps other people find out about the show. Thanks so much. Leaping lizards, is that really me? I wasn't born to fly. I was born to grieve. So circle your buzzers over the yawning deep. I bet all I got against your life that I'm gonna make the leap. 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 Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.